growing up, um, I learned to play the piano, right? And I, I, I learned to play the piano, and each time I was given a new song, my piano teacher would often tell me something, something that, that goes along the lines of like, like this. She would say, Dom, it's too hard to learn the whole song all at once. So what you need to do, Dom, is you need to break the song up. You need to learn one of the parts or one of the voices of the song first. And so she would break up uh, the song into chunks for me to learn. Now, most of the time, what that would mean is I would have to learn to play the song with my right hand first, the right hand bits. Um, now, quite often, the right hand bit of the song or the tune uh, was the melody, right? The bit that we kind of remember of the song. And so, for example, and this is, it goes, it goes something like this. Here we go. Now, after I got confident knowing the right hand bit, my, my teacher would then tell me, you know what, Dom, you need to add the other hand. Now, that's the part. That's another part. It's another voice. It's a harmony bit, so to speak. And, and this part was often very odd because uh, on its own, it sounded nothing like the song that I was learning to play. For example, it sounds something like this. Which doesn't really sound like chopsticks, does it? Now, once I got confident, uh, there are some songs, there are certain songs, the more difficult ones, that have even more parts, even more voices to add. And that would sound so foreign to the song that I was trying to learn. Uh, it would sound maybe something like this. And so... After getting confident, after learning each of the individual parts, and don't worry, I'm getting to an end now, uh, I would learn to put it all together, right? And when I did that, and put all three parts together, it would sound, and please forgive me, something like this, I hope. There you go, whoa! Oh, man, I was, I was really not sure whether I should do that or not. But what, what, what's going on here, right? Each individual voice, each individual part, whether it's the melody, whether it's the harmony, when you put it together, it makes sense. And it helps to know the song in the way that it was meant to be known, and in this case, played. Now, this isn't true just for the piano, obviously. It's true for any instrument. It's true for any choir, band, orchestra. They go through a similar process. To know the song well means, very often, bringing together different parts and different voices. Now, as we look at Psalm 19, and we are looking at the Bible today, we're going to see that while God is certainly not a song, He's far from it, actually, to know Him, and as Rachel read for us this beautiful psalm of, of knowing God, there are actually at least some similarities to learning a song. See, we're going to see that there are three voices. 
in the psalmist in Psalm 19 introduces to us. And I want you to keep the, your Bibles open as we look at the psalm, because I think it's wonderful, it's beautiful. Um, C.S. Lewis describes this as the, as, as the most beautiful poem in all the Psalter, right? And so, like the song, like learning a song, not all the voices, not all the parts are, are as important as some of the others. But God intends that we come to know Him when these voices are in harmony. And so Psalm 19 introduces us to the three voices. They're in your outlines. If you've got them as you came in, uh, we're going to hear the silent uh, word of creation. Then we're going to move into the perfect word of Yahweh before we finish up with the searching word of the hero. So three voices. And I believe the psalm shows us they work in harmony. But before we look any further, let's commit this time to God in prayer and move away from the dreaded chopstick song. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we uh, just want to come before you now. We want to come before you uh, desiring to know you. And we thank you so much that the Psalms do that in a way uh, that really no other text in Scripture seems to do. It engages our heart as well as our mind and moves us into considering uh, through lyrics and poetry um, what it means to, to be in relationship with you as your people. And so, Father, I pray for all of us today. Uh, I pray that um, the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. I pray that the med meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. And I pray that you would be speaking clearly uh, this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin with the first uh, voice, the first point, the voice of creation, the silent word of creation. Keep your Bibles open, yeah? So the, the psalmist begins his song much like we would um, begin, um, much like, sorry, how we began today's service. We sung all creatures of our God and King. We looked to the natural world. We looked to the world around us, right? And the psalmist particularly focused in on looking at the sky, at the heavens above, the star and the moon. Now, I wonder, have you, have you ever looked out the window of a plane after it takes off? You know you, where you reach a certain height, where the plane is now gliding to be high enough to be in the midst of the clouds, or maybe even slightly above the clouds, and as you see the pillowy form of the clouds up close, surrounding all around you, and depending on the time of day and the weather, they might produce all these different colors, all these different textures, pink, white, gray, blue, black, have you ever looked out the window and seen all of that? Or maybe I wonder whether you've gone out far enough from the city, perhaps to the middle of a field, and stared up at a clear night sky. And that night sky is just filled with glistening stars, a crescent moon, and darkness is all around you, and yet the night seems so bright because of all these lights above you. Have you done that? Have you ever sat on top of a hill, all rugged up early in the morning, and you're there so early that you're seeing the sun just begin to break over the horizon? It's rays warming the air around you. You see the darkness begin to break away in the presence of light, the beginning of a new day. Why can nature amaze us? this way. Have you thought about that? Why can nature fill us with wonder? Why can it move us? Why when you gaze above, can it take your breath away? 
Why can it be such a source of calm, even perspective? I mean, if we've learnt anything about these heavenly bodies uh, in the last century, it's that it's all pretty ordinary stuff, right? It's made out of gas. It's got a bit of light, shadow, rock, liquid, water vapors flying all around in space. And so why does nature impact us the way that it does? The psalmist gives us an answer. The psalmist's answer is this. Nature has the capacity to affect you deeply because nature is great art. Nature has the capacity to affect you deeply because nature is great art. See, friends, when you come face to face with great art, right? it might be a piece of uh, uh, fantastic music, right? a, f- a phenomenal story, a great poem, right? literature, that has the capacity to move you, doesn't it? And nature, according to the psalmist, can move us like great art because it is great art. And if we, like the psalmist, if we pay close enough attention to these cosmic works of art, we begin to be directed away from them and we begin to be directed towards their words, towards their speech. And if we look at the first two verses of the psalm, we're going to see this focus on speech. Right? In verse 1, we see that the skies and the heavens, what do they do? They declare the glory of God. They proclaim the work of his hands, right? The, the form uh, in the original language implies that this, this sort of speech, it's not a once-off thing. It's not like it does it once and it's done. It's something that they declare and they proclaim ongoing. But even if we were to miss that, right? Verse 2 says that this speech that they do, it's day after day. It's night after night. See, nature doesn't stop speaking. It doesn't stop declaring. It doesn't stop proclaiming. So what is it saying? It's saying this. It's saying that we are not an accident. We were crafted beautifully. We were fashioned purposefully. We are products of immense imagination and powerful passion. We are works of art created by an artist the likes of no other artist comes even close to comparing. See, the way verse 1 is structured, again in the original language, it begins with the word, the heavens, And the verse ends with the words, the sky. And right at the center of the verse, you you have the glory of God and the works of His hands. Now, I've tried to do this in English. It doesn't really make sense. There you go. The heavens declare at the top, proclaim the sky is, not great English, sounds like Yoda. But um, you've got in the middle, the glory of God, the work of His hands. You see, church, the heavens and the skies at its very center the psalmist is saying, proclaims endlessly about God and His creative glory. Wonderful, isn't it? See, when we look into the skies by naked eye or through a telescope, what nature wants to reveal to us is God's creative genius, expressed from its radiance and from its rhythmic, repetitive speech. Right? And so we see, as the psalmist moves... We see this just as clearly as the psalm moves into verses 5 and 6. Right? He talks about the sun. He talks about the sun rising and setting. Right? As it rises, it's like the radiance of a bridegroom who's just married coming out of his bridal chamber after the first night together as bride and groom. Right? 
the journey of the sun from east to west, from rising to setting, the psalmist says, is like a champion who sets out to run his course with strength. He starts and he finishes as intended with great power. Nothing can escape the sun's heat as it makes its course. It's powerful and it illuminates everything in its raised path. You can't avoid it. Now we're going to come back to that imagery of the sun because it's really important. We'll come back to that in a bit. Um, but in a feature earlier this year, actually, uh, the National Geographic interviewed a number of people who had uh, physically seen the Earth from space. And the subheading was, uh, the majesty of our planet can be difficult to describe, but these astronauts will try. Right? The magazine feature is there. Now, in that magazine, in, that, in, those, in the interviews, one of the astronauts said that they were so gobsmacked as they looked at Earth, at the sight of all the oceans and all its colors, that when he was in the, 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 the rocket, right, he began to try to think of new words that describe all the different shades of blue that he saw. Right? Another said that they never got tired at looking at the earth from space, and when they came back said that uh, they wouldn't want to even be in the same room with someone who could get tired of that. Now, what have they done as astronauts since coming back? Well, since coming back, some of them have branched now into fine art right? because they want to illustrate better what they've seen. Some have moved towards animal conservation efforts. Others have begun coalitions thinking about balancing ecological health and human needs. See, what's common across all the interviews in this magazine feature is this, that despite all the advances of space discovery, despite all the technological developments to understand the world and our universe better, that hasn't made us indifferent. In actual fact, it's done the opposite. It's made us more fascinated. It's made us more awestruck. See, not one of these astronauts came back dulled. They were transformed. And they saw the world completely differently. And it's changed their life since returning. And I want to say to you today that the Christian belief agrees with this understanding of nature. I think better than any other belief and worldview. You see, Eastern beliefs, they'll say that the natural world is, is an illusion. It's temporary. It's going to pass away. Right? It's not going to last. It's, it's, it's not valuable. Nature's not valuable. Western secularist belief, they'll say that nature is violent. Right? Organisms have survived and they've beaten others to remain. There's very little beauty in that. Right? But what does Christianity say? Christianity says that nature is works of art to be discovered valued, they're beautiful, and even more so that as fellow creatures of nature, we are to see the things of nature as fellow works of art. There is no other view of reality that holds nature with such dignity and care than the Christian faith. Right? And I, I say all of this, right? I've spent a bit of time doing this. We have a high view of nature. We see that in the psalm. But the psalmist even acknowledges that there are some shortcomings, Especially when we're thinking about knowing God, there are some shortcomings with nature. There are at least two, right? The first shortcoming is that the speech of creation is silent. It's silent. See, have a look back at verse 3. The psalmist says that they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. It's silent. Which almost doesn't make sense, except we're all pretty familiar with nonverbal communication, aren't we? 
right? Gestures, actions, signs, we use it all the time. And while it can be effective in certain instances, it's pretty limiting in what we can actually communicate. So, for example, if I were to show you this, what does this mean? Tell me, what does this mean? Shout it out. Okay? Okay, right? Now, um, it's a-okay. Now, if you were to do this in Brazil or Russia, apparently, this would be a sexual insult. If you were to do this in Tunisia, it means that you're worthless. In Japan, if you were to do this, apparently, this means money. All right, here's another. What if I were to do this? Oh, nope. We're both controlling the slides here. You can do it. There we go. What's that mean? Good, right? I agree, great. Um, now, apparently, if you did this in the Middle East, this is a highly offensive version of thumbs down. Uh, in Greece, it means, uh, sorry for the language, up yours. Now, uh, I got all of that with a quick Google search, so it could be wrong. Um, but the point remains, right? Nonverbal silent speech can be misinterpreted, can't it? See, the silent speech of creation can be easily misinterpreted, but it also means because it's silent, it can be ignored. Right? The Apostle Paul makes the point in Romans 1 that the truth of creation Although it's plain for all to see, it can be suppressed, it can be ignored. But that's not the only shortcoming, right? Uh, this, the silent speech of creation is also not just silent, it's impersonal. Right? I, don't, I don't know if you noticed this, when you, if you looked at this psalm in your community groups this week, but the psalmist uses two different words to describe God in this psalm. Right? In verses 1 to 6, he'll use the word God, um, which is kind of the most generic term you can possibly use for God. And yet from verses 7 onwards, right to the very end, he uses the word Lord. Or maybe you might know Yahweh, right? The personal name of God that God revealed to the prophet Moses before the formation of Israel as a nation. So it'd kind of be like if I describe myself to you as uh, just man, and then I describe myself to you as Dom, right? Both are true, but they each reveal something a bit different, don't they? Right? One is very general, one is very generic, one is meant to be personal. And so the psalmist is making a very significant point. He's saying that if the speech that pours forth from nature, even if it's interpreted correctly, even still, it doesn't reveal the relational and personal God. As revealing as nature is, we need more than that. And so there are a number of shortcomings, which is why it's not surprising where the psalmist goes to next. In the next two verses, next few verses, in the next voice, uh, our second point, the perfect word of Yahweh. Right, we're at our second point, the perfect word of Yahweh. Now, I know on a Sunday, um, going into a deep dive of poetry uh, isn't something you're probably wanting to do. Uh, but as we've heard over the last few weeks, as we've looked at the psalms, and now we reach our last um, uh, Sunday in the psalms, um, by the way, there's a prayer and worship night next Wednesday where we're going to be singing and praying through the psalms. So it's not kind of the end, but please come to that. I forgot to announce that earlier. Um, sorry, don't know why I went there. But um, to understand the psalms more clearly, um, we have to recognize that there's poetry involved. And so we're going to have to do a bit of poetry digging. So follow along with me. The poetry in these verses, it shifts pretty radically, right? It goes from the first six verses that we've kind of looked at. There's this, it's free-flowing. It's grand. It's these loose pictures that we see. The first six verses. Now, we, as we move to verses 7 to 9, 
we get this very symmetrical, very tight pattern and rhythm. Right? And if you look even more closely, verses 7 to 9, they're structured exactly the same. Right? Have a look at your Bibles or at the slide that I'm going to pop up. Right? Each line begins with something about the instructions of God or Yahweh. Right? You've got the, stat- the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the decrees of the Lord. Right? And then for each of these lines in these verses, they then add an adjective. Next slide. Nope. Right? Perfect. Trustworthy. Right. Radiant. Pure. Firm. And then it adds a benefit from Yahweh's instruction, right? Refreshes the soul, makes wise the simple, joy to the eyes, light to the eyes, so on, right? And so you have this, what you've come from, this very loose, free-flowing structure and rhythm in the first six verses, and now you've moved on to this very tight, symmetrical structure and rhythm in the next three verses. Why does the author do this? In the past, people have thought, that maybe these are just two different psalms and, and, and they've just kind of stitched them together and so they're, they're super different, super odd, just that don't make sense together. But I want to say that I think the writer is communi- communicating actually something amazing about knowing God through this shift in poetry. Something astounding. See, what is it? While nature proclaims and declares the glory of God, it's at best fuzzy. It's at best unclear. It's at best just free-flowing. But as we've already said, right, it's impersonal. It can be misinterpreted. But as we turn to God's instructions, His perfect Word, we now get a very clear, deep view of Him. We can know Him clearly. We can know Him deeply. We don't just know the Creator God of nature. By His instructions, we now know the personal Yahweh. Yahweh's instructions are perfect, unlike the silent voice of nature. It's, it's kind of like the melody, if you like, of the three voices in this psalm. See, friends, the shift in poetry isn't just for some nice contrast. It communicates something earth-shattering about how God makes himself clearly known. And so God has given his people um, clear instruction. He hasn't left his people to their own devices to figure him out through peering, peering through trees and caves. He's given them instructions, precepts, statutes, commands, wisdom, ordinances, which, by the way, we're not meant to look at that and kind of go, oh, what are commands, what are precepts, what are statutes, what are... No, the point is that altogether, they are comprehensive and show us that all of God's words are beneficial to know him. Now, when this song was first sung by the Israelites, Yahweh's perfect instructions would have come from, and they would have been thinking about, just the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, They would be thinking about that. They would be looking at that as what God had given to them and what they would turn to for guidance. See, for them, Yahweh's instructions weren't just laws and rules to abide by. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments. Yahweh's instructions provided guidance for right and wise living. And like our psalm today, it gives refreshment, joy, and light to the eyes. Now for us here, right, other side of the cross, who probably prefer to read the New Testament over the Old, and perhaps even reduce the Old Testament as burdensome, out of date, 
we need to unlearn some of that, I think. And we need to learn to begin to read and see the Old Testament the way the writer of the psalm did, as instruction for the people of God into right and wise living, in relationship with Him. See, remember in the Old Testament, God's instructions were never given to Israel as a way to somehow win access to Him. Yeah, that's really important. It wasn't ever given as a way to win access to Him. Remember, God was already dwelling in the midst of His people. God had already saved them. He had already loved them. The instructions God would give always came after His love and salvation in order to guide them into li- to live holy and right because they were already loved and saved. See, they were never given to gain or win salvation and God's love. And for us, Jesus never abolished what was in the Old Testament, did He? He fulfilled it. And so there is still great wisdom, there is still great delight for us as God's people here and now as we come to Yahweh's instruction in the Old Testament. Uh, But of course, for us, this side of the cross, this now applies to all of Scripture, right? All of Scripture is for holy and right living for those who belong to Him, right? Um, And so the same descriptions that we see for the first five books here in verses 7 to 9, that now applies and extends naturally to all of Scripture for us. Now, um, you might be here today and you might be going, well, you might be going, Dom, you've said that the Bible is perfect a number of times now. And I just don't agree with you. Actually, I find that very offensive. Because that's not true. There are things in the Bible that are offensive to me. There are things in the Bible that are regressive to me. Now, if that's you, um, firstly, I want to say thanks for coming. Uh, But I also want to say this. Can I urge you to maybe take a step back for a sec and consider this? What offends you in the Bible does not necessarily mean that um, it's a universal offense. What I mean by that is um, what you're offended by, the text that you're offended by in the Bible hasn't always offended everybody across all culture and across all time. Actually, what offends people and the texts that offend people changes with every era and with every culture. Let me give you an example. There are some cultures in certain parts of the world that have seen family members killed before their very eyes by their enemies. Now, if I brought the Scriptures to them and I I looked at the passages where it says, you ought to love and forgive your enemies, that would be pretty offensive, wouldn't it? That would be highly offensive, actually. But for us, who live in Sydney, a pretty comfortable part of the world, forgiving our enemies, that's almost common sense. Of course we embrace forgiving and trying to love our enemies. We would even, maybe even advise to other people to do that, because it's good for them. You see, texts that are offensive and backwards are probably products of your social location. Right? You are upset at things that are likely true only for the culture where you live. Now, that doesn't take away the fact that it is offensive to you. Of course it's offensive to you. And and please don't hear me say that it shouldn't be offensive to you. Because if it is, it is. But also realize there is no set texts that offend all people across all time. And also realize that if you even subconsciously believe that what offends you must therefore offend everybody, and if you're not offended by that, um, there's something wrong with you, then there's something a little bit culturally narrow about that. Right? Uh, so I've heard it explained this way. If you, if you think back to the views of your uh, uh, 
great-grandparents. You might not have met them, but just think back to some of the views that they would have adopted, right? Chances are that a lot of them would be quite embarrassing to you. Yeah? Now, don't you think that if you were to maybe have great-grandparent kids down the track, that they would also look at your set of beliefs and be similarly embarrassed? At least some of them. And so what God has revealed in Scripture, although it was said in history, we believe that it transcends time and culture, and therefore it will be offensive in one way or another, right? To every culture and every society, but it will be different. And so can I encourage you, if your only reservations with the Bible are culturally bound, um, maybe lay them aside for a little bit as you wrestle, because chances are maybe in 50 to 100 years they might not be so relevant, yeah? Um, Sorry, that was a bit of a, a, a slight detour, but I, th- I think that's worthwhile as we consider what it means to know God revealed through His perfect Word. And so we've looked at the silent Word of creation, we've looked at the perfect Word of Yahweh, and now we turn to our third voice, the searching Word of the hearer. The searching Word of the hearer. Now, uh, let's have a look at from verse 10. Read with me. Verse 10. Um, they, as in God's instructions, they're more precious than gold than much pure gold. God's instructions are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, that's an incredible prayer to God, right? Incredible prayer to God. Um, Now, we're going to look at this prayer, this final voice. Uh, We're going to look at it from two angles. First, we're going to look at the poetry again, and then we're going to look at the posture of the prayer, right? So, firstly, the the poetry of the prayer, and then the posture of the prayer. Firstly, notice the poetry. Um, We're going to see that there's actually some pretty clever wordplay going on, right? The prayer that the writer prays kind of connects back to the imagery of the sun, all the way back in verse 6, right? So, the, the, for instance, the original language for the word heat, back in verse 6, that's actually deliberately a bit ambiguous, right? On one hand, it can mean heat, the way that we see it, or, um, or, or it can mean fury and anger. See, it all depends on where you stand. It makes sense. It depends on where you stand. See, if you stood um, in a place of, uh, where you're cold and dark, um, Heat, on the, heat would mean warmth, like our Bibles translate it. But on the other hand, heat can be absolutely terrifying, can't it? Right? If you're, um, ex- like, almost like you're experiencing anger and fury. Now, if you're on the brink of dehydration, for example, and you're getting a heat wave, or if one is deliberately trying to hide in the shadows and then you get exposed by this light and this heat, that's terrifying. See, what the servant is praying here links back to what the sun does, right? Just as the sun examines and, re- and, and gives light and warns with its heat, so too the servant, when they examine God's perfect word and instruction, they're also rewarded and warned. That's what we see in verse 11. There's also another little bit of wordplay, right? Scholars reckon the word warned in verse 11 that we've got in our NIVs, that might not actually be precise enough because the original actually means to illumine. Right? Just like the sun does with its light. 
Now, what's the point of talking about wordplay? Because on one hand, it's all very technical and doesn't really do very much for me, and it's poetry. But again, I think what the psalmist is trying to do is he's trying to communicate this amazing, wonderfully crafted point. That just like the end of verse 6, nothing is hidden from the sun's heat. Here, after the psalmist has reflected on Yahweh and his perfect word and his perfect revelation, he now prays that he might be similarly, completely exposed. He asks to be um, illuminated. He asks for illumination. He asks for the heat of God's instruction to do its work in his life. He asks that his hidden faults, that he can't even discern to be forgiven. He prays that his sins, that he does by his own decision and his choice, what he describes as willful, might not rule over him. Because to do that would be a great sin, presumably because he knows about it and is explicitly doing it. Right? He prays to be completely exposed in the way that the sun leaves nothing deprived of its heat. And so there's something to take away from that, isn't there? Right? Church, when was the last time God's instruction in Scripture exposed something in your life? When it exposed sin in your life? When, when was the last time that God's perfect word revealed what you may have been attempting to deliberately hide in the dark? When was the last time God's word drove you to ask for forgiveness? Or maybe when was the last time it illuminated for you maybe His warmth or His anger? I wonder if I asked you that, if I came to you and spoke to you just between you and me, could you recall that? Because if this is what God's perfect word does for his people, I wonder if it's true for your life. But secondly, and I think more importantly, we're not just looking at the poetry, we're also looking at the posture of this prayer. See, I don't know how you responded to those uh, short questions that I just asked. But my natural response, if you're anything like me, is while I want to do God's work, while I want Him to work in my life and to, and to illuminate and expose things in my life, at best, it's kind of through gritted teeth. It doesn't sound very desirable to be illumined and exposed. That's not very fun, right? But what's the posture of the psalmist? Verse 10, the psalmist sees God's instruction as more precious to him than even the most pure of gold. It's sweeter to him than even the purest of honey. Now, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase C.S. Lewis a little bit here, but he pretty much, uh, when he's reflecting on this verse early on, he'll, he says, um, I can understand this verse, the, the sweetness, the, the, the preciousness. That could be true of, you know, God's mercy maybe, or maybe his other characteristics, but I don't get it with his instructions. I can understand that a man maybe should respect it, maybe try to obey it, agree with it, but it's really difficult to know how it could even become delicious. Exhilarate me. I wonder if you're in the same boat as C.S. Lewis. So the question is, why does the psalmist pray the way he prays? Why does the psalmist view God's instruction the way he does? And the key, I believe, is that the psalmist prays to God as his rock and his redeemer. I think that's the key. As his rock and his redeemer. See, for the people of God who originally sung this song, the little italics at the top, right? For the director of music, a psalm of David. That tells us that they thought back to God's servant. David, as they sung it. See, for David, 
God was certainly his rock and his redeemer, right? Chosen by God, knows God personally and deeply. We read it a little bit in our first reading today. God redeemed and rescued him time after time from trouble and war. And as the people of God sing this psalm later in history, they look back to the redeeming acts of God for his servant David. They recall the commitment God has shown him, the willingness that God has shown him, the delight that God has for him to redeem his servant and also the people under his care over and over again. And see, as the instructions that previously may have just been strict guidelines of what is good and right, as they keep singing, as they keep reflecting on the servant, on this servant David, it now gradually becomes instructions, not just guidelines, instructions from a deliverer who, a deliverer who rescues, who wants what is best for them. Right? A few years ago, I was um, in Zambia with, with World Vision, and I was visiting rural Zambia to see... Um, a project they were particularly working on. My sponsor kid was there. Uh, and so these projects they have, they run for 20 years, right? Long-term projects. Because the goal of these projects is they want to deliver a particular rural village out of poverty, but not just deliver them out of poverty, but to equip them to be self-sustaining so that by the time the 20 years was up, they would be both out of poverty and ready to stay out of it, right? And so in a way... The work of World Vision was delivering and saving this rural village out of poverty, right? The guidance, the workers of, the, of World Vision, um, the instructions that they gave weren't easy, right? It's a lot of hard work. Building wells, for example, learning to do that on right ground and right land so that the water was clean, learning how to maintain them, learning different agricultural practice, learning to start and sustain businesses particular to their context, right? A lot of work, foreign, difficult, hard. And I'm sure it was burdensome a lot of the time. But on the whole, the community saw these instructions that their fellow Zambians from World Vision were giving them was part of saving them. These people wanted to deliver them and do what was best for them. And so following these guidelines, following these instructions, ultimately... Although it was hard, it came from a place of delight. Hey friends, just like Israel, who, who goes back to, the, to, to David, the servant, upon reflecting on God's instruction, we, on this side of the cross, we reflect on, a great, on another servant, don't we? A greater servant, a greater David. One who in every way was blameless, innocent, who had no faults, willful or hidden, who was perfectly pleasing in God's sight. And yet... This greater, perfect David gave up his very life to rescue and redeem his people. See, the first David received redemption. This greater David gives redemption. See, for the Jesus follower, following God's instructions is so much sweeter, so much more precious, because it overflows from a delight from a much greater David. Jesus, God himself, delights so much in his people, that he would die to redeem them, to deliver them. And so his instructions are beautiful in light of that, aren't they? See, the religious, when they obey the instructions of God, they probably do it either out of fear or pride. The irreligious, well, they don't even concern themselves with God's instructions. They're indifferent, right? But for the Jesus follower, God's instructions aren't crushing. It's honey from a honeycomb. It's the purest of gold. 
And even as it exposes and illuminates, it is a road of blessing from our rock and our redeemer. Now, I mentioned earlier that C.S. Lewis was kind of like, oh, I don't know about this verse. I don't know how to wrestle with that and how to deal with that. He comes back to it a little bit later. You'd be, you'd be glad to know. And he says this. Describing the instruction of God and seeing it as sweet and precious. This is the language of a man ravished by a moral beauty. And the challenge here, if we cannot at all share his experience, we shall be the losers. How is the gospel shaping us as we hear God's word? So, friends, to close, we've heard from a number of voices today, haven't we? God has revealed himself in nature through its silent voice. God has revealed himself perfectly in his instruction and his word. God reveals himself in our cries of delight to him and invitation to search us as our redeemer. And while they're not all essential to actually know God, together they add a depth. They work in harmony to make the melody of God's revelation ring even more beautifully than it already does. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God that wants to be known. And you've made that so abundantly clear to us. You've been so gracious to do that. We just have to look outside, even now as the wind powerfully blows through with the gray clouds around us. Help us to be sensitive uh, to what you are doing in our world. But more importantly, Father, help us to be people of your word that see it as sweet and precious. We thank you for saving us, for restoring us, and wanting the best for us. And so would you mold us to see Scripture that same way? And we ask this in the almighty name of Jesus. Amen.